Tonight, I'd like you to turn to Ephesians chapter 5. We're going to start off here. And then we're going to actually end up in Song of Solomon, chapter 1, tonight. But uh, I'd like to start off here in Ephesians. I'm going to go ahead and pray. Father, I thank you that you have created this wonderful thing that we call marriage. And Lord, we have learned that although marriage is wonderful and there's so many blessings involved in it, it's work. Sometimes it can be even a bit trying. So tonight, as we continue to consider what your word says about the marriage relationship, the different roles that we're to have, I pray, God, that you would minister to our hearts, that you'd enlighten us in your word, that you would teach us, that you'd give us insight and understanding. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, former President George Bush and his wife Barbara were taking a drive one day out in the country, little country road, and they pulled over at this little, if you can picture this, maybe you've like seen it in a movie, you know, a little country gas station, and out comes this older fellow who fills up their tank, and he's washing the windows, and Barbara recognizes this older guy. And she says, whispers to George, I I know him. I actually dated him in high school. And as they're driving off, George looks at Barbara and says, just think, if you would have married him, you would have been the wife of a gas station attendant. And Barbara responded, no, if I would have married him, he would have been the president of the United States. And I think it's true that God, part of the reason why God brings two people together is to use us in each other's lives to help us become what he wants us to be. And we've noted that God really tells us the big plan, the big game of what he wants us to be in um, Romans chapter 8, verse 29, that he's seeking to conform us into the image of his own dear Son. And we've talked about how our spouse is a part of that process. And if we realize it, our spouse is a part of that conforming, transforming process. And if we realize that and lean into that, it can be a good thing. But oftentimes we find ourselves kind of resisting that and and failing to see part of the, the reason why God has brought us together. And in this this study that we've been doing, this class, whatever we want to call it, on marriage, we've, we've noted, we started off with giving you this picture of, of the house and starting with the foundation. Here in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 21, the foundation is in that verse being submitted to one another in the fear of the Lord. Two people being submitted, first of all, to, to the Lord, to Jesus. And then we talked about the walls and how walls in a house are, you know, part of the structure that holds it up and holds it together. But they're also, in the walls are doors and windows, which are points of access and points of illumination. They let light in. And, and so we talked about how the second part of that verse, or really the first part of it, is that submitting to one another, that mutual love and respect that we're to have for one another. And communication is a big part of that. And so we talked about that. And then we talked about how the, the roof represents the covering, Um, that the Bible tells us that love covers a multitude of sins and that we we noted that the roof is that self-sacrificing kind of love. And that's what we started talking about last week when we were, were, were talking about what we called the mission of marriage and how God gave the very first married couple in the book of Genesis a mission. And the mission, really, we could sum it up in this way, that it was they were to love God 
with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength, love each other, and take care of what he put into their hands. The garden is what he had put into their hands. And they were to love him, love each other, and take care of the garden. And that's really the, the mission that God has put into um, or given to all of us in marriage. And a big part of that is learning how to love each other sacrificially. And a part of that was learning what our roles are in the marriage relationship. And last week, we spent a lot of time talking about the wife and her role. Tonight, we're going to talk about the husband in his role. But if you recall last week, we noted that God, there in the book of Genesis, he looks at Adam and he says, it's not good that man should be alone. Now, some people think that God looked at Adam and said, I can do better than that. And uh, so he made Eve. But uh, that's not what the Bible says. The Bible says that he saw Adam's aloneness and decided that he needed a helper. And we noted that that word helper is an amazing word in the Hebrew. It's the word izer kenegdo. And it speaks of a partner comparable to him in strength and power. We noted that this word is an elevated, beautiful term that's used in the Bible also to describe God himself. And the point of the the, the roles that we noted last week is, is that there is a partnership, but God clearly says that the husband is the head of the relationship. Like Jesus is the head of the church. And the husband isn't the head because he's better, smarter, or more spiritual. But we noted that th- this picture that God is, this, this, the, the thing that God's doing in this relationship is making a picture for us. And the picture that he paints is that of Jesus and the church. But also God calls the man the head if, because it's a matter of responsibility. That God puts, and guys, I want you to catch this. He puts us in this role and in this place in the picture of Jesus. And that's the picture. And there's a responsibility there because we know the Bible says that we love Jesus because he first loved us. So our love is in response to his love for us. And that's the picture that God's painting is that the husband's or the wife's um, love is going to be in response to her husband's love the love that he has for her. And so it's a matter of responsibility that God puts upon us as the husbands that we carry a bigger weight because of that picture. And so we noted the wife's role is that of the helper, the Azeric Negdo, and she's called to submit and to respect her husband's leadership. And, I, and I'm purposely doing this background because I want you to catch something here. Um, and we define submission as to come alongside your husband in a supportive role that respects the responsibility that God has given to him as the servant leader in the family. So tonight we're going to talk more in detail about the role of the husband in the mission, but I want to start by saying this. In that Roman first century culture in which Paul was writing, submission was not a radical concept like it is today. Today it's a radical concept. It's one that people struggle with, and I think a lot of times women struggle with it, quite frankly, because it's been abused, Um, In the church, it's been abused in marriage, it's been abused in our society. But to the woman that Paul was, or to the women that Paul was writing this to, it wouldn't have been a radical concept at all because this was the Roman mindset about women. They said this, we have prostitutes for sexual pleasure, we have female slaves to take care of our bodies, and we have wives to bear children and to take care of the house. Ladies, aren't you glad you weren't living in the first century Roman culture? That was their view of women. So literally under Roman law, a husband was not obligated, or he was only obligated to provide a roof over his wife's head and the opportunity for her to bear children which meant that they were going to sleep together sometimes. But he didn't owe her date nights. He didn't owe her romantic dinners. He didn't have to learn about love languages. He didn't have to go to marriage conferences. Nothing like that. A roof over her head and an opportunity to bear children, 
That was it. In that culture, women were seen as incomplete to men. Okay? They had a saying. They said this. Thank you, God. They they would pray this to the gods. Thank you that I am a Greek and not a barbarian. That I am a human and not an animal. And most of all, that I am a man and not a woman. Isn't that crazy? That's how they thought in that culture. So in Roman culture, they had this very, very low view of women. So when Paul would write this to the ladies, hey, ladies, women, you need to submit to your husbands. If that's all that he said, they would have been like, duh. Like, you know, tell us something new. We're already doing that. But here's the radical thought. It's when, if you look at verse 22, when Paul says, wives submit to your husbands as to the Lord. That was the radical thought. Because what he was doing with that simple statement is that Paul was hitting on a very important truth that submission, listen to this ladies, submission to their husbands is connected to their walk and relationship with Jesus. That wives were to place themselves under their husbands, not as a matter of Roman law, but voluntarily, like the church places ourselves under Jesus. That it wasn't a matter of law, but of love. It wasn't a, a matter of obligation, but devotion. It all stemmed from, and it still does to this very day, their relationship to Jesus. And note, the instruction to submit does not address either the, women's, the woman's intrinsic worth as a person and a child of God. Because in 1 Peter 3, when Peter's talking about the marriage relationship, he calls the wife, catch this guys, a fellow heir of the grace life. That's what he says about her. Just like you guys, he's saying she's a fellow heir of the grace life. So a wife's submission had to do with function in the mission, not value, just as Jesus was functionally submitted to his father, yet equal with his father, so the wife is functionally to support her husband, yet she's equal to him in the big picture. Because remember in the mission, remember what God said there in Genesis chapter 2? It says that God said to them, God blessed them, Adam and Eve, husband and wife, and God said to them, it was a ordered equality. It was a partnership. Jesus had a function and a role to play in the salvation plan, and the wife has a role to play in the marriage plan, in that mission that God has put together. So Paul tells us in Ephesians, when marriage is is functioning in the right way, and both the husband and the wife are functioning in their roles within the mission that God has given them, it's this beautiful picture of Jesus and the church. Now, what was even more radical, though, than exhorting and instructing the wife to submit to her husband as unto the Lord was when Paul said, and husbands, this is what you're called to. You're called to love your wife as Christ loved the church. That was radical. That was a radical concept because they didn't think in those terms. Again, the wife was a possession. The wife was property. That's how they viewed it. And Paul's saying, no, no, you need to love your wife. This is your role in this mission, to love her as Christ loved the church. Let's look at verse 25. Husbands, he says, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her, that he might sanctify her and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word, that he might present her to himself as a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. Now the word that Paul uses here for love is the word agapeo in the Greek. It's speaking of the highest form of love. 
In that culture, you know this, they had different words uh, for love. There was the word that was phileo love that spoke of a brotherly type of love. There was the word storke that spoke of a familial type of love that you would have like towards your children. There was the word eros that spoke of a sexual kind of love. But the highest form of love was this word agape. It's the same word that's used in John 3.16 when it says, for God so loved agape the world that he gave his only begotten son. It's the highest form of love. And Paul describes what it looks like when he says it's the love that led Jesus to give himself for the church. And the idea there is that he laid down his life for the church. Now, a lot of times when guys hear this, they think, okay, what he's saying is I need to be willing to die for my wife. If somebody breaks into the house, I'm standing in front of her and I'm ready to take the bullets. That's what it means. That's what some guys think. Now, of course, it means that you, you better be willing to take the bullet for his wife. But that's easy. I think any of us would, would you know, do that. We, we would want to protect. That's ingrained in us uh, as a man. But it's much bigger than that. Because he's talking about doing this on a daily basis. And this is this self-sacrificing kind of love that we have been talking about. And he's, he's talking here really about the cross, the picture, the wonderful picture of the self-sacrificing love that Jesus gave when he went to the cross for us. And if you think about it, in Jesus' case, the cross was an instrument of death that brought life to others. That's what the cross was. Jesus went to the cross and died there on the cross to bring life to others. A friend of mine described this verse in this way. And I think this is a great definition. He says, men, you want to know what it, what it means to love your wife as Christ loved the church? Look at what Jesus did. Jesus entered into our world and he died there. So you want to love your wife as Christ loved the church? Enter into his, her world and die there, okay? That's what it means to love your wife as Christ loved the church. Enter into her world and die there. But the cross was an instrument of death that helped others become who they were meant to be as children of God, to, to rescue us so that we could be redeemed and, and brought back into that relationship and become who God wants us to be. So to love your wife like Christ loved the church is to daily love her in a way, listen guys, that, help her, that helps her become who she was meant to be. It's coming under her to lift her up. To love her in a way that helps her fulfill this tremendous role of the Ezer Connecto, the helpmate. So you, you do that by recognizing her strengths and giving her opportunities to shine in those strengths. You do that by recognizing her wisdom and bringing her into decisions. You do that by, by recognizing the gifts that God has given her and encouraging her to use them. It's a love, in other words, that elevates others. So the picture that Paul is painting is how Jesus went to the ultimate ends for his bride, the church, to help us become who we're called to be. That's the picture. Now I want you to notice that he says there, in verse 25, that Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her, that he might sanctify her and cleanse her with the washing of the water by the word, that he might present her to himself as a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she should be holy and without blemish. Now, I want you to note something here that might surprise you. Many pastors... Use verse 26 and 27 to teach and say to us as husbands that based on what these two verses are saying, that we as husbands need to be washing our wives in the word like Jesus did. How many of you have heard that before? Okay, applied to that. I've actually taught this before. Um, but recently, about a year or so ago, as I was 
studying this passage and teaching this passage on a Sunday morning. And, and it's funny, sometimes, you know, you, you hear something and it's like, oh yeah, that, that, that makes sense. And that seems, you know, that seems great. That's a good point. And I will say this, I do think it is a good thing that husbands spend time in the word with their wives and are nurturing them in the word and, and you know, that, that the word does wash us. So there is a biblical application there definitely, but I don't think that's what this verse is saying at all. If you really, really look at this verse, it's not exhorting the husband to do anything. But what it's giving us here is an illustration of what Jesus did for us. So this is just a further beautiful picture of Christ's full redemption, that Jesus went to the cross, sacrificed everything for the full purpose that you and I, as his bride, might be sanctified, that we might be cleansed, so that he might be able to present us to himself without spot or blemish. That's what Paul's saying here. He's building on this picture of what Jesus did to magnify the full extent that Jesus went all out to make it so that we would be fully complete. That's the picture that he's painting here. Paul's showing us the great lengths that Jesus went to in his sacrifice that he gave everything for us. And that's the point that he's trying to make of this self-sacrificing kind of love that you give everything. But then notice he follows this up with an exhortation in verse 28. He says, so husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. And he who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it just as the Lord does the church. And then he adds, if you look down at verse 33, a further exhortation when he says, love your wife, guys, the way that you love your own body. And this is a very interesting picture, an analogy that Paul paints. He's saying, husbands, this is how you love your wife without self-sacrificing kind of love. Because we sit there and think, okay, what does that look like practically? He's going to tell us. And what he tells us is love your wife as you do your own body. And he who loves his wife loves himself. He's saying, look, your wife, she's a part of you. You're one. So Paul says, hey, we don't hate our flesh, and we don't, right? You guys all, you know, before you came here, you probably, you know, took showers if you needed to, and most of you, you combed your hair. Um, A couple maybe didn't, but most of you did. You know, we take care of ourselves is the point, right? We know how to do that. We, We love our bodies, we pamper our bodies. We feed them. We're in tune with our bodies. We, we know when we need to relax. We know when we eat, when to eat. Most of us in this room are really, really good at self-care. And he's saying, husband, you need to nourish and cherish your wife like you nourish and cherish your own body. That's the picture that he's painting here. So what I want to do tonight is to talk about what does it look like to nourish and to cherish. These are two very descriptive words. The word nourish means to care for, to build up, and it really carries the idea of bringing something to maturity. Now, we get that as it relates to our kids, right? We are, you know, from the time they're babies, we're nourishing them. We're seeking to care for them and build them up and feed them. And we're seeking to bring them to maturity. Now, with the, the picture of the husband doing that for his wife, don't think of maturity in the sense like, oh, my wife's so immature and she's like a little kid. But it's no, it's the idea of, I, I want I want to be God's instrument. I want to be a blessing in coming under her to help her become everything that God wants her to be. So there's a caring for, a building up. And then the word cherish means to use tender love and physical affection to give warmth, love, comfort, protection, and security. Now think about this. 
you nourish and cherish things that you value. Every Saturday, you can drive through a neighborhood and you see some guy out there nourishing and cherishing his car, right? He's waxing it and polishing it or his motorcycle. Why does he do that? It's a value to him. It's a, he, he loves that. You know, you see guys, they take really good care of their guns or really good care of, you know, these different things. They clean them and shine them. And I say, what about your wife? What are you doing to nourish and cherish your wife? And tonight, in the rest of our time together, I want to talk about three ways that we as men are to nourish and cherish our wives physically, emotionally, and spiritually. First of all, physically. How do we nourish and cherish our wives physically? We do that by providing for them and by protecting them. Peter, or not Peter, Timothy, Paul said this in Timothy. I think most guys understand their role as a provider, but this is a heavy verse. 1 Timothy 5.8 says, If a man does not provide for his own household, Paul said, that man has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. That's heavy. That's a heavy statement, isn't it? It shows, though, the magnitude that God places upon the husband to be a provider to take that role as the provider seriously. Now, does that mean that a woman can't work? No. A woman can work. In fact, the Bible commends the Proverbs 31 woman. If you read Proverbs 31, that woman was very industrious. She was a businesswoman. Um, she did a lot. I mean, I, I read that and thinking, man, this, this woman was like off the charts. Just incredible the way she, that she's described there. But having said that, the Bible is very strong in depicting that a woman's primary calling is to be a mom, a mother, and a wife. And taking care of the kids, taking care of the home, and the reason for that is because God has designed her in that way, and God has designed and called the husband to be the main provider. So I believe that when the kids are young, if it's at all possible, a wife should do everything that she can when her kids are not in school to stay home, if that's possible. I know that's hard. Here in Southern California, this is a very expensive place to live. But I, I just want to say that I think a wife should do everything that she possibly can when the kids are young to be at home with them as much as possible. So, guys, their, their first calling in physically nourishing and cherishing is to provide. The second calling is protection. You value her by making sure that she feels protected and respected. That, that, and I think one way that that works is that your kids are in no way disrespecting your wife. That has been the one thing in our house. When my kids were younger, I'd let them get away with different things. And, you know, there'd be certain things that, you know, they, they, you know we, we would punish them for. But, but the thing that brought the severest punishment was any time they disrespected Denise. Because I wanted them to know how valuable she was. How important she was. That that was not something that they could do. That she's the queen, okay? And they, I, wanted them to, I wanted them to, in a sense, see her in that way. I think another way that we do that is by making sure that she's coming before the kids. And again, I know that can be challenging at times because kids are into a lot of different things and you're both running in different places and, and doing all of that. But, but regardless of that, your, your kids need to know, guys, that you value this woman that God has brought into your life more than anything else. You value her and protect her by covering her flaws rather than exposing them. Don't belittle her 
in front of the kids or in front of others. I'm sure all of you have been somewhere or out with someone where you know, there's a spouse be, or a person in a marriage belittling their spouse. Little jabs, you know, little, little things. And sometimes they're said in jest, but we, we know there's, there's, there's always a little bit, little bit of truth, right? In those little, little stabs. And I've been places sometimes with somebody where I've watched how they talked and I've thought, man, if this is what they're like in private, I wonder what they're like in public. What is he saying to her behind closed doors? You protect her by covering her flaws rather than exposing them. So we nourish and cherish physically by provision, by protection. What about emotionally? Well, I want to give you several ways that we can see this in Scripture. I want you to turn to, first, or to Song of Solomon, chapter 1, if you would. Song of Solomon, chapter 1. And it's interesting that the book of Song of Solomon is a love song or a poem between Solomon and his first wife, his true love. She's called here the Shulamite. And this was the first woman. If you know Solomon's story, for 20 years, man, he's walking with God. He's doing great. But then the next 20 years of his life, he goes off the deep end. He gets all these different wives and just completely, I mean, he becomes a mess. But early on, he has this one girl that he loves. And and he writes this book, kind of looking back on their story and their time of dating and courting and marriage. And he's sharing their story with this group called the Daughters of Jerusalem. So, you know, if, if you're like movies, this is sort of like the notebook, 10th century BC, okay? And it's a song that celebrates love in all of its respect. And, you know, some people maybe forget this when they read the book of Song of Solomon, that, it, that it's inspired by God, okay? First, uh, in 2 Timothy 3 tells us that all Scripture, including the book of Song of Solomon, is inspired by God, okay? And so in Song of Solomon chapter 1, it begins with this physical cry of affection, When she says in verse 2, let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth, for your love is better than wine. She's crying out here for affection. And I think the point that God is wanting us to get is that physical affection is important. And I've found Two main, or there's two, two things that I've encountered in 25 years of, of counseling, probably hundreds of couples. There's two things that, that are just, you know, common in almost every situation. And it's number one, a woman's desire for her husband to be the spiritual leader. I told you that before. But the second one is this, is that she desires affection. Not necessarily just sex, but affection, okay? And here's what's happening, and I I want you to see something as we we go through this. Hopefully you've turned to Song of Solomon because you're not going to catch this if you aren't going through the, the passage with us, but we see a breakdown. We see a transformation that really happens with her here. Verse five, it says, we begin to get this idea of how the Shulamite viewed herself. Look, it says, I am dark but lovely, O daughters of Jerusalem, like the tents of Kedar, like the curtains of Solomon. But then she says this, don't look upon me because I'm dark, because the sun has tanned me and my mother's sons were angry with me and they made me the keeper of the vineyard, but my own vineyard I have not kept. Notice this. In verse six, she says, don't look at me. Because I'm dark. Now, she's not saying that she's a black woman here. That's not the point. She's saying that the sun 
has tanned her like the tents of Kadar. The tents of Kadar were made of dark wool. Now, we live in a culture here in Southern California where tan is considered attractive, and it's in. We go spend hours in the sun, and we go to the beach, and we, we like to be tan. But in her day, that wasn't the case. Women who were tanned, the only women who were tanned, were working girls. Those who were working out in the fields. And she says, my brothers were angry with me, and so they sent me, so they sent me out into the fields. And in that day, you see, a woman's skin was considered one of the most precious parts of her body. And so she would seek to protect it. And fair skin was in, but she's dark. So right away here, we see that the Shulamite is insecure about her appearance. Things haven't changed very much, have they? I mean, here we are so many thousands of years later, and we live in an image-obsessed society where today eight out of every ten women and five out of every ten men are dissatisfied with their appearance. And that's where this woman, the Shulamite, was at. She felt unkept. She's saying, don't look at me. Don't look at me. She's expressing her insecurity about her appearance. She says, but my own vineyard, I've I've worked on the vineyard, but my own vineyard, what she's talking about, her own body is unkept. But then she says this in verse 7. Tell me, O you whom I love, where you feed your flock, where you make it rest at noon, for why should I be as one who veils herself by the flocks of your companions? So in verse 7, what she's saying here, she wants to know where in the field that he's going to be today with his flocks so that she can join him. She wants to come and have a lunch. And so we see this common you know, tension and dilemma. She wants affection, She's craving intimacy. In verse 1, she's saying, kiss me. She wants companionship. Tell me where you're going to be for lunch so I can come and be with you. But at the same time, she's feeling undesirable and saying, but don't look at me. Okay? Does that sound familiar? We go through that, right? I think one of the biggest hang-ups that many, not all, but many women have with sexual with the sexual relationship is that they don't feel desirable. They look in the mirror and they don't like what they see. And so the last thing they want you to see is them naked. And they struggle with that. But guys, husbands, listen. It is our privilege. Not our duty. It is our privilege. To help your wife feel desirable. And guys, listen to me. I'm talking about all the time. Not just when you want sex. But all the time. Letting her know that she is desirable to you. Solomon seems to understand this. He seems to understand the need for him to make his wife feel desirable. And I want you to notice, guys, what he does here. We can take a lesson from him. How he verbally affirms his beloved. Now, I want to just say this. Don't use his lines, okay? They won't work for you today, all right? But catch the heart, catch the tone, catch the approach, Notice in verse 8, he calls her the fairest among women. What is he doing? He wants her to know that she's desirable to him. You're the fairest among women. You're the most beautiful of all. I love to be in a crowded room, put my arm around my wife and whisper to her, you're the most beautiful woman here. I love to do that with her. I love to encourage her in that way. Now, she's, you know, not blind, and, and you know, she realizes that, you know, she's in her 50s now, and, and, uh, but, but she appreciates the gesture. She knows the heart that, to me, she's the most beautiful woman in the room. Notice in verse 9, he says, I have compared you, my love, to my filly among 
Pharaoh's chariots. Now, some of you are thinking, did Solomon just call his wife a horse? <laughs> well, understand what's going on here. I mean, you can't use his lines. But Pharaoh had 12,000 stallions, the best of the best. 1,400 chariots. Horses were the prized possessions in that culture of kings. And what Solomon is doing here is he's wanting his wife to know how valuable she is. So you catch what he's doing? He's first wanting her to know how desirable she is to him. Secondly, he's wanting her to know how valuable she is to him. This is how he's seeking to uh, affirm her and to nourish and cherish her emotionally, all right? Note the phrase, my filly among the Pharaoh's chariots. Here's the thing that we need to understand, is that you would only use stallions to pull the chariots. And you would never put a filly, a filly is a female horse, among the stallions because she wouldn't be put, you wouldn't put a filly among the stallions because the stallions would become distracted by the filly. They wouldn't go where they're supposed to go. They'd start competing with one another for the affection of the filly. So the only time you'd ever put a filly with the stallions is if you wanted the stallions to really run fast, you'd put her out in front. So they would chase her, okay? That's what they would do in that day. So here's how Solomon is affirming this woman that he loves. He's saying, your beauty is so awesome, it's distracting. It's like a filly among the stallions. It's distracting to me. It's hard to concentrate. So he's distracted in a good way when she's around, that she's more valuable to him than anything else. And guys, our wives need to feel and know that they are more valuable to us than anything else. More valuable than our possessions, more valuable than, than our careers, more valuable than our friends. So he's nourishing and cherishing her emotionally with these words of affirmation, how desirable she is, how valuable she is. And I want you to notice how he continues in verse 10. Your cheeks are lovely with ornaments. So he's talking about her earrings, you know, hanging down by her cheeks. Your neck with chains of gold. So what's he doing? He's noticing her jewelry. He's paying attention to what she is wearing. And I want you to catch this. The daughters of Jerusalem pipe in. In verse 11, they say, we will make you ornaments of gold with studs of silver. They're, they're like saying, hey, he likes your jewelry. We'll make you more of it. That's how they're responding. What's he doing here? He's paying attention to the details. Now, I got to be honest with you. I got to work on this one. This is one of the ones I have to work on because a lot of times I don't catch the details of what's going on in our house sometimes and sometimes, you know, something maybe Denise has done um, and I'm, I'm not, I, this, is, this is an area. She'll tell you. She was here, she was here, she go, he needs to grow on this one, you know, she would say that. And I'm trying, I'm working on it, but I just, again, we're learning here from Solomon. Solomon's praise, this is what I want you to catch though, Solomon's praise for her inspired praise from others. Isn't that cool? And I think what we say publicly about our mate will often influence in either a good way or a bad way the opinions of others about them. If we are praising them, others are going to see them in that way. But if we're constantly de degrading them, then that's how others are going to see them as well. Now, as we follow the course of this conversation that I want you to notice takes place outside of the bedroom, okay? This is not about sex at this point. And what we see, the way he's affirming her, this is, not, this is out in the open. This is in public. What we can see is this transformation that begins to take place in her. Remember, she starts, don't look at me because I'm unkept, I'm unlovely. I want you to notice her response, verse 12. While the king is at his table, my spikenard sends forth its fragrance. A bundle of myrrh is my beloved to me that lies all night between my breasts. The sack of myrrh was a small pouch of perfume that a woman would wear around her neck at night when she slept. 
And when she woke up in the morning, her body would give off the fragrance of that scent. So what she's saying here is that his love for her causes her to give off a sweet aroma. It's, a, it, it's speaking here of her countenance. She continues, my beloved to me is a cluster of henna blossoms. Whoa, that was weird. <laughs> um, verse 14, my beloved is to me a cluster of henna blossoms in the vineyards of Engedi. Now, you got to understand, anybody here been to Israel? A few of you? Um, Engedi is one of my favorite places to visit in Israel. It's down by the Dead Sea, which is a desert area. It's very dry. It's a very arid place. Um, but in this hot, dry, arid climate, there is this tropical oasis called Engedi. And Engedi is this place that has all this lush vegetation. There's rivers. There's waterfalls. It's a place that David, when he was hiding from King Saul, this is where he went. He went to Engedi. And his men and him lived in the area around Engedi because it was such a beautiful place to go with its rivers and waterfalls and lush vegetation. So here's what she's saying. Your love for me, your words of affirmation are refreshing to me. Now think about how we go through life. And we, we're roaming through this life, and oftentimes it can feel like a desert experience, can't it? It can feel dry. It can feel difficult. Life can be parched. Relationships can be parched. But what a joy when we in our marriage relationship can bring refreshment to one another. That in the midst of, of the parchedness, in the midst of, of just feeling like, man, I've been in the desert all day to be able to come home to our spouse and feel refreshed and feel built up. This is, this is the idea. Now, some, and maybe some of you guys, I don't know, are looking at this and going, okay, I hear what you're saying, Pastor Rob, and yeah, Solomon sure seems lovey-dovey, but... That's just not me. I'm just not that kind of guy, you know? It reminds me of the husband and wife. They, they'd been married about 70, or actually, no, they were in their 70s. They'd been married over 50 years. And the husband, or the wife just was feeling like, you know, he doesn't love me. He never tells me he loves me. So they were meeting with their pastor and and the, the, the past, she was saying, you know, we've been married for 50 plus years and he never ever tells me that he loves me. And the pastor looked at the husband and says, is that true? And he said, look, I told her I loved her when we got married and if anything changes, I'll let her know. <laughs> That's the mentality of some guys. Let me ask you this. How many of you like a compliment? The rest of you not raising your hands don't. I think all of us, right? We love it when somebody says, hey, cool shirt, or, or hey, good job. And, you know, we enjoy that. Why would we think our spouse wouldn't enjoy that? What, Paul, what Solomon here is, is saying is, is he's given us an example of something to grow in. And words of affirmation are a way that we love our, nourish and cherish our wife emotionally. And I'll just say this, because I have not always been the best at this. I haven't been the best of this in my marriage, but I haven't all, I've also haven't been the best of this in, in, as a, a boss, you know? Um, but I've gotten a lot better. And part of it was just realizing I needed to grow. You know, I grew up in a structure in ministry that it was kind of like you only got talked to when you were doing something wrong, you know? So that was kind of the, so as long as the boss wasn't talking to me, you know, I must be doing great. And I kind of adopted that. 
You know, Pastor Chuck, you, he, he, you know, God rest, rest, rest in peace. You know, love, love him. Um, but it's funny. He, he literally would teach this. And, and I used to listen and go, oh, that's interesting. And now, now I think, and again, respect the, him to death, but I think the Lord told him when he got to heaven, you were wrong on this one. But he used to say, you know, if I compliment somebody or I tell them they're gonna, doing a good job, I'm stealing their reward in heaven. That's not true, okay? I used to think that. So I've grown, I've learned, I've had to say, Lord, I need you to refine me, soften me. So I'm just saying, if, I, if God can change me, he can change you, okay? He can do that, all right? So your relationship needs to become this oasis in the desert. Your kids need to see that. One of the things I used to love to do when my kids were, were younger Denise would be in the kitchen and I just would come walking and I'd grab her and just give her a big fat kiss on the lips and my kids would be like, ooh, gross, you know. But you know what, they, now they've since said, man, we thought that was gross then, but man, we, that made a mark on us. And they've, all my kids are adults now and they said it was, they've told me, you know, it was so great to see you be affectionate to mom. They love that. Our kids need to see that. Our, our neighbors need to see not you making out <laughs> in the front yard, you know, but, but they need to see that kind of love and affection that you have for one another, all right? Here's an interesting thing. <laughs> Some of you got a mental picture now. <laughs> yeah. Interesting thing. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 7, it says this, that the wife is the glory of the husband. Interesting verse. The wife is the glory of the husband. Let me hear you say that. The wife is the glory of the husband. One more time. The wife is the glory of the husband. Now, (laughs) the women are going, yeah! (laughs) It's interesting, that word glory there, it's the word reflection. So the wife is the reflection of the husband. So if a husband takes a look at his wife and doesn't like what he sees, and I'm not talking about her outward beauty, I'm talking about the inner person, Paul says, guess what? She's a reflection of you. Isn't that interesting? She's just showing where you're at. It's been said that marriage is like a mirror. It reflects what it sees. So when a guy says to me, you know, my wife, she's such an ugly person, I just say, well, look in the mirror. (laughs) The Bible says she's a reflection of you. Now, some people, they hear that and go, wait, 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 wait. You know, I know, and I know some late women in this church who are just fantastic spiritually, spiritually just beautiful ladies and they're they're married to guys that aren't walking with the lord or not christians so how does that fit into that well here's how that woman those ladies have just learned to bypass their husband to receive the love and nourishment that they need from jesus And so what we're seeing from them, the reflection that we're seeing from them is what they're getting from Christ. But it's a beautiful thing when a wife is getting that from not just Jesus, but also from her husband. She's refreshed. And what she's saying here is that the Shulamite, the wife of Solomon, she's refreshed by his verbal affirmation. It's refreshing to her. And notice how he responds, verse 15. Behold, you are fair, my love. Behold, you are fair. You have dove eyes. What does that mean? Again, don't use his lines. Don't say, hey, baby, you've got dove eyes. You know, she might be like, what are you talking about? But, but this meant something. You see, doves were symbols of peace. And so he's commenting on how attractive it is to see her in a state of peace and rest. This place of being refreshed and content and secure, he feels blessed and validated knowing how she feels in the relationship. You are fair. You're gorgeous, my love. He repeats it again. And ladies, I just want to say this. What does your husband see when he looks into your eyes? Is it peace? 
Is it rest? Is it contentment? Is it eyes that say, oh, you are such a blessing to me? Or is it eyes of disappointment? Eyes of complaining. Eyes of of comparing. Eyes of never being satisfied. Guys, you know know what happens, ladies? That, that, That just beats him down and beats him down and beats him down. Notice how she responds, verse 16. Behold, you are handsome, my beloved, yes, pleasant, and also our bed is green, meaning it's fertile, and the beams of our houses are cedar and our rafters of fir. What's she doing? In verse 17, she's expressing how his love for her causes her to feel safe and protected. Beams of cedar speak of strength. Raptors of fur speak of being covered and protected. And why? Why is she feeling this way? It's because Solomon has covered her in affirmation. I like to call this, he's covering her in the intimate apparel of his words of affirmation. He's making her feel special and valuable. And because of that, she feels refreshed and rejuvenated by this relationship. But what a, what a, a contrast from how she starts out. Don't look at me. I'm unkept. I'm unloved me. I'm too tan. I look like one of the girls out in the field. And now she's like, man, I just love you. And you know, like, What's happening? This is what's happening because he's nourishing her and cherishing her emotionally. She's feeling secure and protected. And the result has been a total change in her perception of herself. Look at chapter 2, verse 1. She, now she says, I'm the rose of Sharon and, and the lily of the valleys. Her response is, I am beautiful. I'm like the rose of Sharon, one of the most beautiful flowers and the lilies of the valleys that stood up tall. It's like she's, she's saying, like, I, I, can, I, I can carry myself with a confidence. And notice how he responds. This is a good one, guys. Like a lily among the thorns, so is my love among the daughters. Guys, you can just tuck this one away, all right? This is what he's saying. He's saying, all the other women are like thorns to me compared to you. That's what he's saying. It's a beautiful picture. The exchange is amazing. Here she, she's responding, and then she says in verse 3, Like an apple tree among the trees of the woods, so is my beloved among the sons. I sat down in his shade with great delight, and, in, and his fruit was sweet to my taste. Here's what she's saying. Being with you is like being out in the woods, tree after tree, and right in the middle is this this apple tree in which I found shade under it and was nourished by its fruit. She's saying, I feel protected by you and nourished by your love. And then she continues. He brought me to his banqueting house and his banner over me was love. Now the banqueting house was a public place. So what she's saying is this, you're not afraid to show, to be with me in public. You're not ashamed to to have me as your own. That his banner, banner was a military flag easily seen by those who marched. It would carry it on display up high. This is our flag. This is our emblem. So she's saying, your love for me is vivid and it's easy for others to see. That public display of affection. Again, not necessarily, you know, making out, but just like, hey, this is my, this is my honey. I love her. And so I asked this question. Guys, does your wife feel like she gets special treatment from you when you're out in public? Does she feel special or does she feel like you just treat her like any other woman that's in the room? Nothing special. Or worse yet, I've seen some men treat other women better than their wives complimenting them on what they're wearing, you know, at a wedding reception, noticing, oh, you need a refill and, you know, ignoring his wife, but just, you know, being so tuned in. I, I've seen this. And I, and, and, I, and I will say this. I do know some guys, and I just, I want to I be careful in, in, in saying this, but 
I also want to be firm. I know some guys are just naturally friendly, sometimes overly friendly. And if that's kind of your personality, if you're you know, just kind of a very friendly type of guy, I just want to encourage you to be careful. Because not only can you send the wrong message to another woman, but you can make your wife feel very, very insecure and unprotected. So be careful about that, guys. When you're out in public with your wife, she needs to feel like she's the only woman to you in the entire room, that she's the only woman that you're interested in, and she should be the only woman that you're interested in. The final sign of her transformation is that she goes now, she's longing for intimacy. Look at verse 5. She says, sustain me with cakes of raisins. What does that mean? Raisins in that culture were considered an aphrodisiac, a sexual stimulation. So some of you are thinking you're going to buy some raisin bread on the way home tonight, right? (laughs) So she's saying, hey, sustain me with cakes of raisin, refresh me with apples, for I am lovesick. Do you, do you see the transformation? She goes from being, don't look at me. I'm ugly, I'm dark, I'm unkept, to, to now she's, she's lovesick, all because he has covered her in the intimate apparel of his love and affirmation, nourishing her and cherishing her with these words of affirmation. And that's what happens. That's one of the ways that we nourish and cherish our wives emotionally is with words of affirmation. And finally, we're to nourish and and cherish them spiritually. How do we do that? By being in the Word together. By praying together. By sharing and talking about your devotions together like we talked about a few weeks ago. By coming to church together. And hearing a message and then talking together about it. All of that is, is encouraging her spiritually. It's keeping Jesus as the center of, her, of your relationship. It's, it's being interested in where she's at spiritually. Asking her, hey, where are you, where are you at right now in your devotions? What are you reading? What are you learning? What's God talking to you about? And having you know, that type of uh, exchange. Now, some of you, uh, your, your wives have little kids, and so you know, it's hard. It can be really tough and a battle for her to get into the Word. So it's being in a place where you are um, willing to help. You know, when we first, when we had our first child, Aaron, um, you know, my wife, I've talked about how she, you know, her love language is acts of service, and she just so much, you know, wanted to be the perfect wife and have the perfect house and everything, you know, just um, so kept up. But what I fell in love with in Denise was the, the biggest thing that attracted me to her was Jesus in her. And so I would come home from work, and the house would be spotless, but my wife was a wreck. She was just a mess because all day long she's picking up after our, our son and you know, trying to cook and trying to clean and trying to keep everything together and she wanted to just have be the, the perfect, but, but the thing I fell in love with about her was missing because she wasn't spending any time with Jesus. And I had to tell her, I had to say, babe, I don't care what the house looks like when I get home. I'll help you pick it up when I get home. I just want to, I want you to spend time with Jesus. And if you get, you know, uh, an hour when he's napping at this particular time, and, 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 and that's the time, the only time you're going to get all day long to just spend some time with Jesus, please do that. That was so freeing to her. It was hard. I mean, she still struggled with, with you know, doing that. But it, but it was so freeing and it was so beautiful. You know, a man who's nourishing his wife, she's going to respond in love and respect and support for her husband. A woman who is not being nourished, she'll learn to fend for herself and will be tempted to resent her husband instead of respecting him. There was a time in our marriage when this happened. 
I was really working a lot and really wrapped up in what I was doing and my responsibilities. And as I mentioned a couple weeks ago, Denise's love language was acts of service. So she was just totally, this is our kids were now in school, a little, little bit older now, and she's totally just taking care of everything, all the responsibilities of the home, even to the point of doing most of the yard work. And I married a woman who actually liked yard work. So I was like, this is cool. You know, she, she likes yard work. And so I didn't really give it a, a second thought. But I came home one day, and she's out in the front yard, and she's pulling weeds. And I come walking up, and I'm like, hey, babe. So I'm going into the house, and, and I looked, and I noticed that she was pulling the weeds a little more aggressively than normal, all right? So I got in the house and I realized, I think something's wrong, so I better go out and talk to her. So I went out and I said, hey, is everything okay? Something wrong? And she looked at me and she said to me, she said, you know, I just realized today, I don't need you. That's what she said. I don't need you. I do everything around here. Man, that hit me. I was like, ugh. And as we talked through that, I realized that I wasn't nourishing her. I wasn't cherishing her. I was totally taking her for granted. I wasn't doing, I, I, I thought, you know, I'm doing my part. I'm out there earning a living and I'm working and doing all of that. But I was totally neglecting being on mission with her in what we're called to be doing together. So I had to do a major pivot. Maybe you have to do a pivot tonight. You know, you can tell women who are being nursed and cherished by their countenance. You see it in the way they carry themselves. There's a sense of dignity. They know that they're loved. There's a sense of confidence in knowing my husband thinks I'm beautiful. They, they're secure. They're not trying to get attention from others. And you can tell when a wife doesn't feel nourished and cherished, you see it on her face. There's a sense of doubt. There isn't that confidence. There isn't a sense of dignity. So guys, I want to encourage you tonight. Love your wife as Christ loved the church in that he gave himself for her. Learn how. Be learning. Be seeking the Lord on how to nourish and cherish her the way that you do your own body. How do you do that? One, you got to be sensitive to the Holy Spirit. He'll, he'll tell you, if you ask him, what you can do better. And you need to communicate. So I'm going to give you some homework, guys. And the homework is this. I want you to ask your wife, maybe not tonight, might be late when you get home, but sometime in the course of the, this week when you have some time, ask her, what could I be doing differently to nourish and cherish you. And ladies, tell him. He needs to know. He's asking you because he wants to know. I'm not, I'm not going to quiz him. I'm not going to call him later and say, hey, did you ask your wife? And so if he asks you, it's because he wants to know. Secondly, ask her this, guys. What can I do more of? What can I do differently? What am I doing, but, but you'd like me to do more of it? And then ask her this question. How do I treat you in public? How do I make you feel? When we're out in public, do you feel special? Do you feel valued? And be willing, guys, to hear her response. Okay? All right, you with me? All right, let's pray. Lord, I thank you for these couples. I thank you for your word. I thank you for this picture that, you, that we've been given tonight that we see in Solomon. And Lord, I pray that you would help us as men to know how to nourish and cherish our wives in a way that they'll feel valued and special and protected and secure and radically loved. And so God, I pray tonight that you would just bless these couples that are here in this room and those that are watching online. And Lord, we want to just be growing together in our relationships with you and with each other. In Jesus' name, amen.